Hello and welcome everyone to the Latina Libertarian with your host Olga Maria. Tonight we are discussing Vermont Prop 5, Article 22. Is it really about reproductive liberty? Joining me this evening is Matthew Strong, the Executive Director of Vermonters for Good Government. Oops. music did not want to stop. He is also the chair of the Libertarian Party of Essex County, uh, Vermont, and Michelle Helms, who is the Franklin County uh, chair of Vermont Stands Up. She's also a mother of four, and we are so glad to have both of them joining us this evening. Um, each of them stands on a different side of this particular issue when it comes to abortion and choice. Matthew is pro-life, Michelle is pro-choice. But both are agreeing that Article 22 is not what it seems. It's not what is being told to us and are trying to get Vermonters informed about what this change to the Vermont Constitution could actually mean. So join me in welcoming. Thank you for coming, Matthew. Hello, Michelle. Hi. Thank you guys for being here. Okay, so... Um, just to get started, so Matthew, let me start with you. Um, so you are the executive director of Vermonter, uh, Vermonters for Good Gover Government, which really has been behind um, a lot, uh, your website and the mailings and really been behind getting the word out to get people informed of exactly what Prop 5, Article 22 is about. Could you give us... Um, just a, a background of what exactly is Prop 5, Article 22. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, it's also important to, to know that I have uh, a different political view than personal view uh, in, in terms of my um, uh, thoughts on this issue and the, the bigger topic at large. So while I might be pro-life personally, my political issue as a libertarian is, is a little, is a little different. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um Vermonters for Good Government was actually started in 2019 when the, the language of Prop 5 was first introduced in the Senate. And uh, some Vermonters were um, a, a lawyer, a policy analyst, and a bioethicist were looking at this and, and quickly realized what the ramifications would be and thought we needed to have a, uh, an organization that was going to be um, able to tackle this from uh, several different points of view and not just a pro-life or pro-choice stance. So the um, the organization as a whole doesn't actually even take a stand on abortion itself as an issue, but just is a, a primarily anti-Prop 5 organization. Um, so the, the whole Prop 5 or Article 22, depending on, on how you're talking about it. So Prop 5 is the legislative uh, bill number that originated from the Senate which will create Article 22 of the Vermont Constitution. And so we refer to it as both because both of those terms will be on the ballot um, in, in November, but also all already out across the state due to the mail-in ballot situation. So the, um, uh, the Prop 5 itself is actually only a single sentence that we would be adding to the Constitution. And uh, but in this sentence, it creates um, a massive new legal reality that that has been um, 
so far not in existence any, anywhere in Vermont or anywhere else. So, uh, and I'll, actually I'll read this statement because I think it's important for people to understand the language as well as to answer your original question that I am now very long-windedly answering. <laughs> and what, so, what I'm yeah. gonna do is I'm actually gonna sh put it, I'm gonna share the screen. Okay. Um, just so like people can see it as well. So you can yeah. go on ahead and then I also have it here. Sure. Um, yeah, so it's it's the, the actual sentence is relatively, um, it's very vague, it's very benign, it's very uh, word salady, but there is there are three um, parts that actually matter in the legal world and in the real world. And that is the, uh, the term individual, which describes who the rights would be applying to, the personal reproductive autonomy, which is the actual right that this constitutional amendment is creating. And then uh, further on, we, there's a, a, a phrase about compelling state interest that we can get into a little bit later um, that describes how the state would be interacting with this uh, constitutional amendment as well. Um, so the important thing to understand is that um, the word individual uh, removes gender and age from, um, from a legal definition of who this applies to, meaning it applies to all genders and all ages. Um, the personal reproductive autonomy part is something, those individual words have been obviously used in legal things uh, uh, separately, but those three words combined have never been defined by a court of law or the legislature. And that is a really dangerous situation. And then the compelling state interest is something that we can kind of get into a little bit later because uh, it does a little, it's a little bit more uh, involved. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I think like, oh, you, I mean, I have a you're, lot you're, of thought. You're, you're, you're oh. muted somehow, Olga. <clears throat> um, how about now? How about nope, now? Not yet. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Um, yeah. Okay. So keep, Give me one second. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll keep talking as well. Um, <laughs> how about now? Nope, not okay. yet. Oh, shoot. So maybe oh, I know what it is. I'm going um, to stop sharing. So yeah, still can't hear you yet. How about now? No, nothing. That is so weird because I can hear you. Can you? You can't hear me. I can hear you, Olga. Can you hear me? And I can't hear Michelle I can hear you. either. Did I get I can it? hear you guys. I think it's you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not me. You. It's you. <laughs> it's not you. It's me. We can hear you, Matthew. <laughs> I heard you this whole time. I did too. Okay, that's fun. Uh, let me, can you, can you hear me? I'm gonna remove you, I'm gonna remove him for a sec and then I'm gonna add him back. Perfect. Um, how about now, Matthew? I guess that's a new. <laughs> All right. So we'll see. let him figure that out. No sound. Let him I figure that out for a minute. Okay. It's the evening of technical difficulty. Well, you know, it's a hot topic, right? And some people don't want. Yeah. Everyone can hear you, Matthew. Um, hold on. Yeah. Let me just text him in the chat. Uh, oh, people there we go. Now I can hear you. As well. Oh, okay. Can you hear everyone now. And I was just, 
I was just texting to you that your audio is fine. Like we all hear you and the audience okay. hears you. So yeah, so somehow the audio on the other end got turned off and I could hear nothing all of a sudden. And I thought it was everyone else. Okay, there we go. Interesting. All right, so um, just so Michelle, thank you for joining us as well. And I appreciate, I wanted to have, um, like on purpose, I wanted to make sure I had some like people who represented like, you know, someone who was personally pro-life, someone who was personally pro-choice, but show that we can actually have a discussion and a dialogue about this, this um, proposition and the article because it, it's really important. And to show that you can be on either side personally, politically of this particular issue, but we can actually find some common ground. So I appreciate that you're here. What were your thoughts when you heard about this? Or was there any like um, like bells that went off when you read it? Or what was your impression of this? Well, the first time that I actually came across it was just having conversations and seeing all of all everybody starts getting nervous in the state of Vermont about our abortion rights. And I, so it just kind of perked me up into paying attention of what was going on. I mean, I knew that Prop 5 was a topic of discussion over the past couple of years, just from being in the state house, I knew it was a topic of conversation that was on the floor and kind of being kicked around. And, and it's just kind of interesting, the timing. When timing like Roe versus Wade happened, and then I started seeing all of these signs going up around saying, you know, and I'm saying, say yes to Prop 5. I'm like, wow, they've pushed this. They've actually got this forward. And I just think when there's this opportune time for something, when something happens like this and, and there are was federal guidance around and federal decisions made, and then it, it gets dropped into a state's lap, you, you kind of have to stop and pause and be like, wait a minute. This was federal level and it never affected the state of Vermont at all because it always gets pushed down to the states regardless. And so I think there was this major confusion that they utilized to get this out onto the floor, possibly. I mean, I'm just assuming that it was a great, great way to get people to say, now your rights are going to be infringed upon. So you better vote this in, you know? So I was like, okay, let's go read what this actually says. Let's go see what they're actually saying. And I think that's really how this became so, so I guess a, de a major debate is that it's being disguised as something that it's not. And when I really started looking at what it was saying, it actually is, is it's, it's questionable on on what they're actually talking about because it is so vague. Um, there is no abortion uh, in in the writing at all. It has nothing to do with women's rights, particularly on freedom of choice at all. And so when I started looking, just really looking at what they were saying, it, it's just under this guise of protection, protection when already women's rights and um, abortion rights are protected in the state of Vermont without any of this. Yeah, and I think that's an important point is that legislatively, um, abortion is already, it's, it's already here. It's already actually, you can get, um, if I'm not wrong, you can get a full-term abortion in Vermont. In our, you know, that's already law here. Um, so it's a bit, confusing. Um, I felt the same way. I was like, oh, what's this about? And then I realized it's a constitutional amendment. 
Um, and that always changes things because legally then, and, and so if it was simply a constitutional amendment that had very similar wording as wrote, you know, as what like came out of Roe v. Wade, for example, I don't, I think, you know, certainly there would be segments of our, com, you know, community, there'd be people in our state who would be upset about it um, just for, you know, their personal pro-life stance. Um, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be anything like kind of out of the ordinary. But this really is different because it is very vague. And I think it's actually quite dangerous, which is why I've wanted to really have this conversation because I think so many people just are having this knee-jerk reaction of, well, I'm pro-choice. This is just a pro-choice bill. They don't even necessarily understand it's an amendment to the Vermont Constitution or what it means. And most people that I am speaking with, that I've interacted with, have never even read it. They just assume it is Roe v. Wade for Vermont. And I send people kind of just like, I'm like, it's very short, like just read it and you tell me what exactly it says. And most people are saying, well, wow, that's kind of vague. I didn't realize like it didn't even actually mention abortion. And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of potential. Now, the fact that they call it reproductive liberty, I think is also, um, I mean, I find it personally offensive for a couple of reasons, but I'll go into that later. Um, but I think it's really this play on words to, to have people just assume that this is about um, ingraining this right in our, in our state constitution so that anything that happens federally can um, impact it. But it, it's, to me, it's because of its vagueness, um, it's much more um, nefarious than that. I, it, and so, um, Matthew, do you want to speak into, because uh, your organization has done a really good job in terms of um, kind of breaking down some of the potential legal ramifications if this mm -hmm. did, if this does go through and what that could potentially mean for, for men, women, children, for, for a lot of folks. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and it's, I think it's something that um, we've been trying to get the word out that, that we actually have um, a substantial amount of legal opinion on our side. And I created an entire page for our website specifically for all of the legal opinions that people can go read themselves. Um, and it's our, our board member is a practicing attorney who has argued uh, clerk for the Supreme Court Justice of Vermont and also has argued several cases before the Vermont Supreme Court. And then our spokesperson, uh, uh, Ann Donahue, is a Georgetown law-educated lawyer and uh, healthcare policy analyst of 30 years and 12 years in the legislature, and one of the only people in the entire legislature that actually reads every bill before she, she votes on them, which is uh, just a tremendous asset to have. Um, so when we say these things that from a legal perspective and our opinions are not just opinions. They are uh, the legal opinions of some very seasoned professionals who understand a lot of the nuance. And I think it's important to understand that the history in two areas really is um, uh, really impactful for what it means. <clears throat> in uh, 1972, um, a lawsuit that actually Patrick Leahy, now, now retiring um, Senator Patrick Leahy was in charge of basically declined to prosecute a case uh, 
and uh, by default, um, in Beecham versus Leahy, created the right to an abortion a full year before Roe v. Wade happened. So uh, abortion has been legal in Vermont since before Roe v. Wade. In 2019, the state um, passed Act 47 or H57, H47, depending on, on the definition of when it were, you're talking about. And that created unlimited, unregulated abortion um, and also established what is known in the, in the legal world as legislative intent. Because this is so vague, this word salad single sentence has never been defined. The, the legislature, um, even the key architects of, of, the, of the amendment, when asked what it means, they have said the courts will decide. So no one has given us a definition of what it actually means. And so what the courts are going to do is they're going to look at the most recent legislative uh, action to form what they consider legislative intent, as in what did the legislature actually mean when, when uh, handing this down? Um, and what Act 47 did was remove any, um, legis any legal barriers to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, including um, legal, like notification for parents of minor children, um, um, any sort of, any, any barriers at all past uh, viability, um, and even like any regulatory nature that the state could potentially do in the future. As in, there is no regulation at all. There isn't even any health and safety standard inspections on file for any Planned Parenthood clinic in the state um, ever. So it's a, a serious, and every single one, so there was a, a 13 amendments to that bill, which were all voted down. And every time they voted something down, that created legislative intent for the courts to use. So all of those 13 amendments being voted down as part of the Act 47 process in 2019 actually is what the courts are going to use for interpreting um, what uh, Article 22 is actually going to do. And the, the, the real world situation is that currently hospitals and private entities can have and uh, use their own policies, meaning a hospital can say um, it's not regulated, but we as a private institution choose not to do any abortions and uh, not to provide that service. And that's totally fine. As soon as this passes, uh, if it is going to pass, because we're working very hard on making sure that it does not pass, um, that would mean that those policies would be unconstitutional. This would be creating a constitutional right to an, an abortion, or more importantly, and here's the, uh, when I talk to people, I say that unlimited, unregulated abortion through all nine months is the tip of the iceberg. That That's how bad Prop 5 is, uh, because the entire iceberg is whatever the courts decide personal reproductive autonomy actually means. <clears throat> and more importantly, it's going to be whatever administrators think it means. Because if it were to pass on November 9th, um, any hospital or healthcare insurance program 
or state agency um, or school system can immediately change their policies based on what they think this means. They are going to be empowered to say, okay, this is now a constitutional right. So our new policy to uh, give people that constitutional right in the real world is going to be X, Y, or Z. And then the courts aren't going to even get involved until someone sues them because, well, that policy isn't constitutional. So it could be a decade before we fully find out exactly what all of this really means. Um, But most importantly, and what we're talking about, is that uh, UVM Hospital is the only hospital in the state that currently, as, as per their policies, allows elective abortion. They are telling the public that they only do them up to 22 weeks, and then there is an ethics committee review after that. Um, and for any, any abortion that doesn't pass their ethics committee review, what it, in, they don't tell us what, what process that is or how that decision is arrived at, uh, they refer that procedure out of state to a provider who will perform it. So if Prop 5 were to pass, that policy and that ethics committee would be ruled unconstitutional and possibly a complaint would be lodged within days or months. And then um, UVM would be the only hospital in the entire country with zero regulations, zero restrictions, and um, the already operational facility to perform abortions through all nine months with zero interference from the state. So would that also mean that any nurse, nurse, you know, midwife, um, surge tech, surgical technician, um, you know, uh, LPN, anyone who has any philosophical or religious um, feelings that ordinarily as it exists now could say, okay, yep, I opt out of this particular procedure because it violates my personal my, my personal conscience and um, the hospital's like, great, you know, you know, they probably have that already figured out. Um, mm-hmm. Under this amendment, would, would people have the freedom to, to choose whether or not they, can they elect out of, um, or would they elect out of having to participate in that uh, procedure or would, or would they have to, would they not have that choice? Yeah. So it's, uh, there's two, two things to mention there and they're not, and they're not good. Actually three things and they're not good. Uh, Vermont is one of only two states in the entire country that does not currently have medical conscience protection for medical workers, meaning that any mm-hmm. medical worker could um, object to say, I don't, I, this goes against my moral beliefs. I don't want to participate in this particular procedure. And um, the employer could not fire them without legal ramifications. Um, Vermont already does not have that protection for medical workers. Uh, New Hampshire is the only other state, oh, so, and, they, and, okay. and 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 New Hampshire is currently working on providing that. There there is a bill right now. It's already passed the House. It's in their Senate, so it should come up should come up in their next session that they that are going to pass medical conscience protection for workers. Um, so Vermont would be the only state that does not have it. And point number two, it was specifically one of the amendments to Act Forty Seven in two thousand nineteen, which was voted down which means it is now part of the, um, uh, the legislative interest, the in- legislative intent to not provide protection, meaning um, any medical worker in Vermont would not have a legal protection 
to uh, to say I don't I object to this I don't want I don't want to participate they would be fired without recourse. <clears throat> wow. And not, not only that, <laughs> yeah, not only that, I was talking with a, a uh, medical student who said that a lot of hospitals these days, a lot of their hiring practices revolve around medical malpractice. And so it would be who they hire is based on um, their lowest risk possible for malpractice. So it would be very, very possible in, in his opinion um, that in the near future, it would even be part of the hiring process that they wouldn't even hire you unless you agreed right. to sign something saying I, I would participate because then if you don't, they, the hospital could be sued and they wouldn't even worry about hiring you. Wow. I'm sorry, Michelle, I just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that's it's just outrageous. I, I didn't even know that was established right now that people in our doctors and nurses in the state of Vermont didn't have that kind of protection for your personal. Me choice. neither. That's I'm shocked, actually, that that's something. Um, but and, and, and actually, I, yeah, I, think it's I, I wasn't one of, aware I, of that either. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why there is already a staffing shortage in Vermont. There are there are people who are you know close. Like I've talked to a lot of people across the state who said, you know, my child just just finished nursing school, and they won't practice here because that is already the case. Um, so so people are aren't coming here, and it's also part of the the issue for our larger um, um, staffing shortage. So. 40% of Vermont medical, like in, in hospital staff, are traveling temporary staff. I was about to of, say, there's a lot of traveling nurses now because there's yeah. such, there was already a shortage, but because of the vaccine mandates, a lot of nurses, mm -hmm. a lot of people left. Um, and so, and, and now you're, now you're informing us of this other, I wasn't aware that there was no like conscientious objection or, or choice, we should put it. I didn't realize that, that we were um, one of two states that didn't have that. And it looks like we're gonna be like the only state that doesn't have that. And it's always interesting to me to learn these things about Vermont that always um, holds itself as a place that is like open to all people and that wants you know to celebrate diversity. But then you hear these things and it's just like, this really is not the case. There's, they're really pigeonholed people. Yeah, and, and it's I think it's going to be a bigger and, and even so what UVM is telling people publicly, and it's a, a bit it's it's what I would what I would definitely call misinformation is that well well we have a a policy in place that we're not compelling people to our employees to par participate in it, but what what they're not telling anyone in that statement is that there is a caveat in their policy, it, it and the caveat is employees are not are not going to be forced to do um, procedures that they have a moral objection to unless the hospital is short staffed and because 40 percent of their staff is now temporary they are permanently understaffed wow okay so michelle um as someone who's active in the medical freedom like health choice movement um you know now that we're kind of like peeling the layers of this like what are your thoughts yeah, well, on the ramifications of this. Well, my thoughts are is that when when you actually pull the 
top five apart, it is limiting the freedom of choice. It is the minute that something were to come up, and it could be a number of things. I mean, we could put any sort of uh, story behind this. It could be maybe it was a, a, a young woman that wanted to get an abortion, but the but the father didn't didn't want it to happen. So now we have that in place, and it will go to court, and court will decide on what's going to happen instead of you automatically having a choice as right now on what you want to do with your body and who you want to inform. Um, this would mean you you basically wouldn't have that ability to do that from what I am gathering from uh, what I'm reading. Um, and, and that goes for your children. You know, I mean, if all of a sudden we, I mean, we are having a big, huge push right now for uh, gender and and all of this happening in our school systems right now. And if all of a sudden, you know, your eight-year-old gets caught up into the idea that they want to be a different gender, and, and that may be true for them at this time, and they decide that they want their personal reproductive autonomy in whatever thing, whatever they choose, and regardless of their age, they can just bring this against into the court. And it is protected under constitutional law that they could change their gender without any anything that they say is is what I'm gathering. I mean, this could be a number of horrific stories that could unravel right. from. We have no idea, and it's all under the guise of protecting your rights, and it's totally deceptive. When they and, and right. what got out the wording of this was um, the word "unless." It said, "Shall not be denied or infringed." unless justified by a compelling state interest. And that word unless just just threw a red flag up for me and said, unless what? Like how how can there be any more of anything if you've made a choice and then they get the state gets to say, well, unless we have uh, state interest. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> and if we right. want if we want to go even further down the rabbit hole with that, we have a eugenics history in Vermont that is is quite deep that went back to the 1920s and 30s that UVM has, you know, publicly apologized for. And if we really want to go into that realm, I mean, who's to say that, you know, what are they doing with these embryos and these fetuses that are full term that they're going to be aborting? And where where are these going? And, and uh, how much are they getting paid for them? And who is buying them? And, you know, and if if UVM is going to be the only um, university that's going to be performing these type of procedures, I think we have to keep an open mind on what the state interest is. I mean, this is a state-funded university. And uh, mm. so, I mean, there's a lot of things here. And if you go into, you know, I mean, these are mRNA vaccines that a lot of people were, were using their religious freedoms to not take because they're using the tissue of embryos and fetuses. Right. You know, they're using these tissues to make these these shots. I don't call it a vaccine, but it is an injection. And so, I mean, and, and in many cases throughout the country where you where they have religious exemptions, they were denied exactly. for the COVID uh, vaccinations because um, I tissue that people were rejecting them so you know you mm -hmm. you know they're getting these tissues are from aborted aborted fetuses and 
Right. Got to start piecing all the pieces together here. Yeah, and and and, um, and 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 actually, there's that for me is a huge concern because since UVM is now tied to a research facility, um, they got two hundred fifty million dollars in research grants last year. Uh, that it would be a research university tied to a hospital with zero limitations, zero regulations, and zero potential for interference by state regulators. I mean, how so, much did you get? That's it's yeah. I mean, there's so there's there's so much more to this. Clearly, right. Um, the point that I was going to make is um, some people are saying, and I I tend to agree with this, is that this actually is um, creating a backdoor for the state to be able to um, help. Uh, children who want to transition gender, who want to go through um, gender reassignment surgery, that this creates a backdoor to do that um, uh, and, and, by, and removing parental rights. Um, you know, an individual right to personal reproductive autonomy could mean that there is an 11 year old that wants to transition um, or a 14 year old that wants to have um, a hysterectomy. Right. Because these things can fall under that. Um, and so and like I said, had this if, if this were really about protecting abortion rights, I think the language would be clear. It doesn't even mention abortion. And I think, unfortunately, abortion is a dog whistle to the to the to Democrats, to liberals, to the progressive where um, they hear that word. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's like a knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, I have to support this or I have to vote for this person. It's, it motivates them. The right wing has their dog whistles, too. I'm not saying that they don't. But I'm saying for the left, certainly abortion rights. I know many people who are pretty politically apathetic. But once abortion is brought up, they are like on board and they're organizing and getting signatures. And unfortunately, I think this proposition is being used in this way. But it's really... Um, abortion rights are already established in Vermont, and this really goes far beyond that. And I'm glad that you mentioned um, the history that Vermont has of eugenics and sterilization. And when I was saying, um, you know, I find re the, the term reproductive liberty in terms of this specific, um, the Prop uh, 5 offensive, is for two reasons. Um, one of them, because as a libertarian, I think their use of the term liberty is is done to um, deceive people. Um, it's really not about reproductive liberty. But secondly, um, I'm half Puerto Rican. And when I was a child, one third of Puerto Rican women were sterilized um, as, you know, part of a long-term eugenics program that was taking place on the island Puerto Rican women were used as human guinea pigs for the pharmaceutical industry for decades for the birth control pill. And so I've always kind of, um, I guess, like on alert when there's things that have to do with like reproduction and reproductive rights and how those terms are used. And when I read this, and I'll be honest, I didn't really read the second section until like recently. I was astonished that so many women um, in this state who are like diehard feminists and who are about, you know, protecting a woman's right to abortion um, aren't really, you know, didn't 
read this because of this horrific history that we have. And this language, compelling state interest, um, is literally the language that could be used. Maybe not today, maybe not 10 years from now, but we don't know what things could look like in 30 or 40 years, where something like this could certainly be used um, against people. Look how quickly our state went from you know, hey, like we're all Vermonters and, you know, the hippies and the rednecks can, you know, hang out and respect one another to you're essential, you're non-essential, you're not masked, you're not vaccinated, we don't want you here. That happened really quick and it got really ugly. So there's no way to predict in, in a couple of decades how something like this could be used to say, you know what, um, we don't think um, you, you ought to reproduce. Um, that there's a state interest that we think that, um, you know, or we think you don't, you shouldn't have a choice whether or not, because there, we have population issues and we have to make sure you have this, <laughs> like, it's almost like, um, what's that show where the women are forced to have babies? What's oh. that show? Yeah. The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like, you know, people are always like, oh, like it's going to be a right wing thing that the, and it's like, Something like this could literally be, no, you don't have a choice. You have to have that child because we're, you know, we don't know what things are going to look like in 40 years. And when you make something a constitutional amendment, it is very difficult to go back on that. You can't change that very easily at all. Um, and that's what's been so difficult is that people don't realize what they're putting in place. With, I mean, you can't. We have so many times, well, I just wish I would have understood, you know, I, 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 they didn't tell me or I didn't really know and we didn't really know. I mean, we're watching Oster try to get, you know, or she's like, oh, we take it back. We take it back. We were in the dark. We didn't know what was going on. Right. And, I mean, we're gonna, is this what we're going to see every couple of years? Oh, we just didn't know. And I just wish people would um, pay attention to the wording and, and not get caught up in the idea that this is something that they they don't realize if there's much more to it i'm actually gonna uh, i'm gonna play the video um that um vermonters for good government produced so just hang on one second because i think um it does a really good job of um going into detail from this woman's uh experience The supporters of Vermont's Proposal 5, Article 22, will tell you late-term abortions are rare and only occur in extreme medical emergencies. I can tell you from personal experience that this is not true. I am the survivor of a failed late-term saline infusion abortion at 31 weeks of abortion. That's nearly eight months along, and it makes me physically ill that Vermont could become an abortion tourism destination for such procedures should the abortion amendment known as Article 22 or Proposal 5 pass this November. Proposal 5, Article 22 would enshrine in the Vermont Constitution an unrestricted right to abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. If the voters of Vermont don't vote this down, the Vermont legislature would be constitutionally prohibited from passing any law that could restrict abortion, regulate abortion procedures, or protect the unborn in any way at any point in their development. This is not where most Vermonters 
Even those who consider themselves pro-choice are when it comes to abortion policy. In two recent polls, one national and one focused on California voters, just 10 and 13% of people respectively were okay with unrestricted abortion up until the point of birth. Roughly 90% of humans agree, including the office of Roe versus Wade, that some restrictions on abortion should exist at some point, at least after the unborn child is viable outside the womb. But this kind of common sense and compassionate regulation would be unconstitutional in terms should this amendment pass. And as such, people from around the country would flock here to get and to perform such procedures free from legal interference or punishment. This is not speculative on my part. It is by design, as admitted to by supporters of the amendment. Do you anticipate that there will be an uptick in abortion circumvention tourism? I think that's likely uh, here in Vermont, particularly because New Hampshire, a bordering state, recently passed uh, restrictions on abortion after 24 weeks. 24 weeks is six months along. And the New Hampshire laws Carter refers to, in fact, allow for abortion after 24 weeks. When a mother's life or health is at risk, or when a fatal fetal anomaly incompatible with life exists, meaning the infant won't survive outside the womb. So what the law professor is saying is yes, people will be traveling to Vermont to get abortions in the third trimester after the baby is viable and there are no health issues in play for either the baby or the mother. Because this will be perhaps the only place in America where such a radically horrific policy is allowed. I was a perfectly healthy developing baby in the womb of a perfectly healthy young mother. My biological mother, over seven months along in her pregnancy, was pressured by her own mother, a nurse no less, to abort the pregnancy. The method they chose for doing so was a toxic saline injection into the amniotic fluid surrounding me. This toxic salt solution was intended to scald me to death from the outside in. After five days of floating in that toxic salt solution, the doctors induced labor. I was supposed to be born dead, but I miraculously survived. Countless others like me do not. Please don't let Vermont be the place that endorses celebrates, subsidizes, and protects late-term abortion up to the point of birth. Being pro-choice does not mean you have to sign on to this. This amendment goes way too far. Please vote no, either on the ballot you get in the mail or when you go to the polls on November 8th. <clears throat> that is such a powerful video. Um, and interestingly, like I understand the point was to focus on um, the late term abortion and like enshrining that in the constitution um, because probably to go into all the other legal possibilities, you'd need like, you know, a 50 minute documentary. <laughs> 
it wouldn't right. fit. Yeah. Um, and so, the, and so I'm glad that we're actually talking on those points um, here. So like, and again, just to reiterate, you can get an abortion in Vermont. You can get a late term abortion in Vermont that since 2019, that is a law here. Um, even if this didn't pass, even if this didn't pass. Exactly. Without this right. passing, that is not the issue. Right. Um, and, you know, I'll kind of go back to it. Um, the issue is uh, the other <laughs> ramif legal ramifications. Um, and, yeah, and, and actually, in many ways, Act 47 would be more protection for women's rights and protecting choice because it specifically references abortion and specifically references women. Um, where, whereas Prop 5 is not. And that's right. where I think a lot, a lot of people are um, not quite grasping the, the situation where if, if this were to pass, uh, as Michelle mentioned a little bit ago, you're looking at the potential of, of now this right applies to all genders of all ages. And if there is a disagreement between two partners, possibly a, a messy breakup, um, something happens, or even just not a messy breakup, there's say, hey, I'd, a man says, I'm not ready for a kid yet. A woman says, I, I want to have a child. Um, so, well, the man says, well, if you do, that's, um, that is going to violate my constitutional right to personal reproductive autonomy. I'm not going to be responsible for uh, child support. Um, or, I, or, the, or the opposite happens where the, the man says, um, I want you to keep the child. A woman says, no. And you're going to end up in court. You're, you're going to have to hire lawyers, go before a judge, and get the Vermont legal system involved in a decision that was previously not required at all. So that's kind of the opposite of what I would consider women's rights and and choice. Exactly. And I always wonder, like you know, just thinking of history um, in your scenario that you're talking about, Matthew. What if the you know the gentleman gets a really good lawyer and says, mm -hmm. this person is mentally, I mean, this shit has happened. This person oh, yeah. is mentally incompetent, right? I mean, this is how we ended yeah. up with forced sterilizations all over this country and in this state. This person is mentally incompetent. They can't make decisions for themselves. They won't be a suitable parent or, you know, they want to have an abortion, but they're not suitable to make this decision. So, you know, like it could go either way. And I think it's just so important for people to understand that if you are, you know, if you are, you know, pro-choice and you want to um, protect abortion rights in Vermont, um, Prop 5, Article 22, isn't doing that. Yeah. And, you know, that's the and point I really want to get across. It actually yes. opens the door to the state to intervene in your life or the state to intervene in you, your child's life in a way that we've never seen before. And, and I think that is really the purpose of this. Yeah, and, and actually there's, there's um, so it, to, to, it helps to really clarify the compelling state interest portion of this because there is, um, I've talked to several lawyers to talk about what does this actually mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, because it is so vague, it's like, it, does it give more power to the state? Does it give less power to the state? How does it actually work? And how they have, what they have told me, multiple lawyers have said, what this is intending to do is actually prevent the state 
from doing anything. The state is going to have to prove it has a compelling state interest <laughs> in order to pass any future regulation or law. And because of the legislative intent, all of those amendments that were voted down as part of Act 47 create legislative intent that bars a compelling state interest in every single one of those items. So, so in order for this, this is basically um, tying any future legislature's hands. Unless, as you both have pointed out, it, there's also a possibility that the legislature changes hands significantly, the court system changes, and they say, you know what? We're, we're now a much more conservative court and legislature. The court finds that it has a, a compelling state interest in whatever it wants, whether or not that's constitutional or not. I'm just saying as an example, and they could ban abortion completely, totally. So it's, or in, in the more likely scenario, they are intentionally opening a Pandora's box of whatever they can jam under the category of personal reproductive autonomy. And now the legislature can't do anything about it. They can't say anything. They can't pass any regulation. They can't pass any, any laws regulating anything that falls under the category of personal, personal reproductive autonomy. And, and all of this is for not because um, they keep saying, like, well, we, we need to pass this in order to protect rights after Roe v. Wade. If the federal government does something at the federal level, let's say, let's say they pass a, a ban after 24 weeks at the, at the federal level. There is nothing that uh, the, the state of Vermont could do because of the supremacy clause within the Constitution and our legal system. So a federal law supersedes anything in our Constitution regardless of whether we have it there for a specific purpose or not. So we could, we, could, we could pass this all day and twice on Sunday, but if the federal government does something at the federal level, it doesn't matter. So it's not protecting us from the federal government, and it is um, opening Pandora's box, locking future uh, legislators' hands, um, and then also potentially opening up to whatever happens in 40 or 50 years where things change dramatically and all of a sudden they're just going to ban it all together. So it's at almost every single level, even if you are a um, staunch supporter of abortion up to birth and you are totally fine with uh, a minor having a hysterectomy without parental knowledge or consent, this should st you still should not vote for this because yeah. it doesn't protect women's rights. And, and it potentially, it won't do anything against the federal government, and it could potentially be used against us later in the future. Wow. Right. I, I find it interesting, too, when you, when you actually take out all of the inside core of this uh, Prop 5 and read it, that, that an individual's right, right to personal protective autonomy is sent, and then you take the rest out. The individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy shall not be denied or infringed unless justified mm -hmm. by compelling state interest. I mean, just take out all the, all the extra wording. Right. And Liberty you just read it. Yeah. Just simplify it and say an individual's right shall not be de denied unless justified by compelling state interest. And that alone should make a person shudder. 
like that alone should be like, wait a minute, what does the state have any interest? And how would it be compelling enough for them to have any mm -hmm. right to make that decision for anybody, anybody? I don't care if you're male, female, transgender, it doesn't matter, or child. Right. Again, you're, you're handing over your sovereignty possibly to the state because they are not being clear. It's completely vague on what is what. And that is, I just, I'm horrified that, that this could actually happen. Yeah, and and, 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 at, the, and at the very at the very least, it is you're turning over all legislative authority. You're abdicating legislative and voter authority to the court system. Totally, absolutely, one, one way or the other. Yeah, you're saying here it is. Here's my problem. You tell me what to do. Yeah, you know it's 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 just destructive and and I think it speaks. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it speaks to the incredible manipulation um, that is being perpetrated um, by um, politicians, by, you know, lobbyists and, and special interests and the media. Um, you know, you see the, it, and I, it's just marketing, right? But you see these campaigns of um, Article 22, Prop 5, and the way they word it and they're able to manipulate people without even putting the language of the prop proposition like in their commercial right like i said they're just able to use like certain certain words and so um i know there's a lot of folks who just feel like they have to vote on this because this is their issue and this is what motivates them and they really believe that they are protecting um, women's access to abortion yeah. and you know it's like well it's you know two weeks to flatten the curve <laughs> you know we, we manipulated and here we go again um, with something you know specific to Vermont in terms of this where it's so vague um, and like you said Michelle it's like if you just read you know an individual's rights to personal reproductive autonomy unless yeah. <laughs> there's a interest that could literally mean everything. And we saw what st compelling state interest looks like the last Absolutely. two and a half years. It looks like you're not gonna, you know, they, they could choose you're, you're not essential enough to go to work. Um, you know, if you don't get, if you don't wear a mask, you can't go into certain places if you didn't get the vaccine. So, I mean- Well, it's not even just that. It's the fact that, I mean, mm -hmm. we've, got, we've got hospitals telling doctors that they're insane if they don't comply, you know, I mean, they're losing their jobs and and people are, are are just like pummeling people who are vaccine injured and say well it's a mental problem that's just a mental problem you need to go to a psychologist and and speak to them because it's all in your head you know i mean these are all all these uh, uh i guess you would say um vested interest in keeping something alive right so what what is uh what would it be for the state not to be like, well, you obviously cannot make a proper decision if it's not aligning with what we deem is right. So therefore we're taking your rights away because we need to, uh, you know, we have compelling state interest to make sure that well, we have, you know what I mean? That, yeah, I don't know if that's and compliance, clearly, but. I hear you and for example, compliance like, oh, 
Um, I mean, we saw it, right? So what if this gets tied into, oh, you're not complying with this public health thing right. that we want you to do, whether right. it's putting this device on your face, putting pharmaceutical. So guess what? Um, we feel that you're not capable of making certain decisions for yourself. Well, I mean, I mean here's, here's another scenario that, you know, or another situation that I don't think everybody is really getting a full uh, visual on because I only know because I have a pretty good communication with with my 13 year old and he tells me things that are going on in the school system and since he's been back this past year and uh, he's been asked questions you know and that that never made it home to me from the teacher or from the school itself um, what is your what do you identify as and and what do you want to be called and and they keep these things inclusive between them and the student. And none of these questions were sent home in his packet, you know, to come home. That, that got sent out in the beginning of the year that you fill out. Like, what does your son identify as? You know, just incorporating the family. They left it for the first day of school, you know, where he got to go in and say, but none of that stuff was sent home to me. And I never would have known it was happening unless he had told me. And another thing was, was they asked if he wanted to go to a race party. So it was basically a, 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 a support in CRT. There was an author, you know, that there was speaking. And if they said they wanted to go, then the parents got oh. the invite to, to sent home. If, if the children said they didn't want to go, I never knew anything about it. The only way I knew about it was my son told me. We got, an in, we got a questionnaire on if we wanted to go to a race party. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah. I go, well, did any of your classmates go? He goes, yes, they left. And what did you do? Well, I sat and did schoolwork. So we have this whole group of people that are doing one thing when your children are doing another thing and you have no idea it's happening. I mean, and so this involves this type of ability to say, well, your ch child actually identifies as a female, but we couldn't tell you, we kept that between us. And they, I mean, that leads the path down. They are in state school, you know, is state and federally funded. Yeah. That if there's, there's compelling already, interest to yeah. keep this child safe mentally, because we have this whole mental health thing now, you know, where which we should, but in this way, it's a little manipulative where, well, your child identifies as a certain gender and in compelling state interest is to keep them safe. And they don't feel safe telling you at home because if they did, they would tell you. I mean, we can go in so many different directions with this, but we have to keep right. open minds on where they could lead with these kinds of stories. You know, already there's And that's the things. thing. There's already this level of secrecy or right. Yeah, it's just it's secrecy strange. with between the with between the schools and the parents. They're yes. already, they've been othering parents, right? Like parents are supposed to be kind of outside of this realm and, you know, the schools, the teachers and the other, you know, the other staff in the schools are kind of allowed to have this level of intimacy and access with your child 
um, and it, and and ex, and it's okay to exclude parents from this. Like we already have this culture has already been created and fostered in our public schools. So I think a lot of people when they see this and parents in particular, these are some of the questions they're like, this is so vague. And because of like what you're saying, like you're experiencing with your child, like it's auto, you're automatically thinking. This could this could really be implemented in a way. So like right now, as a parent, you can go to your school board meeting. You can complain. You can pull your child out of school. I mean, like you can go. It's not that they're going to change, but they could say, wow, OK, like we really can't, you know, uh, we can't do anything with Michelle's kid. Like, OK, like we understand. Like, she, But with this, your child could be taken out of your home. Absolutely. I mean, it 100%. can go to an extreme in that sense, because it's so vague and because it's this amendment that could be applied in such a way. Absolutely. And I think this is very, really scary. And, and again, um, I think people who are, who support the rights of children who are struggling with gender identity, I don't think you'd want to go to where you, you, you want to empower bureaucrats and the government to be able to make these decisions at the exclusion of the family. I would hope not. Right. Especially if you have an eight year old ready to, you know, have a hysterectomy, you know, because they think that's what they want to do. And not really understand what that is. Or even a 15 year old. I don't, it doesn't, regardless of the age, it's your child that is making a decision and, and they're being bad. But not, right. And not understanding the complexity of that. Not, and we're not even talking about that we're still at the precipice of this and we don't understand the long-term effects of these types of interventions Absolutely. in children. We're just starting to see a detransition movement that is speaking out. And, you know, I mean, it's not to make that this is about like, you know, this particular issue, but the reality is this proposition is so vague that it can be applied to it. Absolutely. Has there been any, um, uh, Matthew, in terms of like the legal research and conversations and 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 work that your organization has done, has this been one of the topics that has been discussed? Uh, it's something that we've looked into, and it's something that I'm I'm have seen a lot of evidence for as to why they use the word individual. Uh, I, I think that this is intentionally why they chose individual and not woman and not person. Um, person in court. Is the definition for a an adult? Um, they and and this and this is specifically in Act Forty Seven from two thousand nineteen, where they said specifically person, female, abortion. They use very specific language that is is very indicative that this applies to women and it applies to adults. Um, by using the word individual, they purposefully pulled out gender and age, which tells me that it was intentional to uh, to go, because this is something that I'm seeing across the country, Planned Parenthood is having an increased role and in working on a bigger income stream uh, and revenue stream from the, the transgender uh, uh, movement. And by by having this apply to um, children of any age, it, it gives them a lot more license. And I think it's something, so it's also important to understand that there are so my two biggest reasons why this is not good, from, from a libertarian standpoint, um, as, an, as, an, as another little side note, as part of this conversation, I believe fully in the least amount of government possible. So when people see, oh, reproductive liberty, libertarians should be voting for this. 
Um, this, this, there's two big reasons. Well, there's a bunch of reasons why not to. But from a libertarian standpoint, this entire thing, the legislation, um, the the uh, constitutional amendment, um, comes from a direct uh, corruption issue. So the Speaker of the House is a former Planned Parenthood employee and has been uh, colluding with Planned Parenthood. Um, and we have evidence of this now because John Clark actually did a Freedom of Information Act request back in 2018 that showed that the Attorney General's office met with Planned Parenthood employees and Speaker of the House. So Planned Parenthood current employees met with Planned Parenthood former employees who was the Speaker of the House and use taxpayer dollars to fund attorney general help in, in, in facilitating and the process in general to create, in, in our opinion, um, Prop 5. And in many ways, I think they also talked about using H-47, Act 47, as the legislative intent to, um, they knew that they were going to have to pass this, to pass Act 47 in 2019, so that they could have that legislative intent for um, Prop 5 in 2022. So I think that there was collusion and corruption from the beginning with Planned Parenthood. It was written by Planned Parenthood for Planned Parenthood. And unfor unfortunately, there are almost zero ethics laws in Vermont. Any other state, if a legislator were to vote on something that has a direct impact on their current or former employer, that would be a big deal. In Vermont, there is no such um, statute or law that prohibits that. So as, as a result, it comes from a place of, of pretty big corruption. Uh, and then second, from a libertarian standpoint, what, what we are seeing is that this will be used to force um, other institutions to participate or face losing their license or funding. So right now there is only one hospital in the state that does this because they have changed their policy. Also, that was from a Planned Parenthood employee who was the head of the board of trustees of UVM um, and, and got that policy changed. And so this could then, if, 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 if a, someone sues UVM and says your ethics co uh, committee and your policy of, of banning after 22 weeks is now unconstitutional, uh, the state would very easily say, tell all of the other hospitals with uh, surgical capabilities, this now applies to you as well. And if you don't provide abortions, the same as this as UVM, uh, you will lose your license and your funding. So it, it's, it's an instrument that is going to be used against, against so it's gonna be more state intervention under the guise of reproductive liberty, for uh, that it comes from a place of corruption, so it is it is kind of the the antithesis of what libertarianism is all about, about free um, and individual choice and freedom and freedom of association and having your own policy uh, regardless of what anyone else thinks. So it's it is a really big issue from a libertarian standpoint as to why you shouldn't uh, vote for it, even if your approach was libertarian. And I know that. Libertarians are right now, they're going through this struggle where, where, where half libertarians are pro-choice, half are kind of pro-life. What does that actually mean in the real world? And there's this huge spectrum of opinion about what that means. You know, there's people who say you should be able to have an abortion up until nine months with zero, zero 
government intervention. And then there's also people that stay on the other side that you shouldn't be having an abortion even if the mother's life is in danger. So there's this huge spectrum of opinion. And in, in reality, I think it comes down to whether or not there is a, a person involved. As soon as that is a, is a second person involved, i.e. The, the baby, then that person is deserving of the same protection as all the other persons. And so the, the real argument is where at, in that process of gestation is that a second person from a libertarian standpoint. Um, so it's a really bad situation from all <laughs> angles. And I think, and I think, as I mentioned before, it's intentionally, they use that word individual intentionally because of that corruption from Planned Parenthood looking for another income stream um, to, to have a direct pipeline into that um, business model. <laughs> It's incredible. I was not aware of all of that background. And so, you know, we have, um, unfortunately, like these, this type of um, corporatism, you know, and we saw it, we see it with big pharma. And, you know, what would we call this? Like, big medical, like, you know, we're seeing it. <laughs> The medical industrial complex, right? Like, I mean, and I and I do see that the gender transition um, industry, because it, you know, we went from having like three or four gender transition like specialty clinics in the country, and now there's, I mean, there's probably hundreds of them at this point, hundreds of places, and you know, you can't ignore that the reality is is that this is something that is lucrative, right? Like anything that you know, makes money and that can ensure, you know, someone who is going to be dependent on some level, whether it's on pharmaceutical, um, for, you know, medication or whether it's on like surgery that they have to have, um, you know, every so often, perhaps for the rest of their life, you know, these are things that are lucrative. So to see this marriage um, between these type of industries and lobbyists and, you know, and the government, it's so dangerous. I mean, and we see, you know, military industrial complex, pharmaceutical, you know, big pharma industrial complex. Um, and it seems like this is another, you know, version of this. It's, it's you know, pushing its ugly head and it's utilizing and it's manipulating, um, you know, a, a, you know, abortion rights. Um, Absolutely. And I think as you, as you dig into this, Olga, even deeper, and you start looking at the investors, and you start looking at the people throwing money towards these things, and they all come under the same headings of what we've seen over the past three, I mean, decades, but the past three years for sure of who is heading this up, you know, and you, you know that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a huge contributor to Planned Parenthood, and it was Gates' grandfather that started this whole Planned Parenthood, from what I understand, it was his grandfather and, and father that kept this going. And you just start looking at the common faces here and the vested interest. And then when you start seeing it leak into the state like this, it just throws those flags up and saying, okay, you know, hold on to your hats and pay attention to the words because this is, it's, this is manipulation at its finest and it's not for the protection of anything or anyone that's under the guise to just make money off of, of, of people just not, uh, it's, it's under the guise of protection and that you think you're doing a good thing 
when really you're being manipulated into the puppeteer and you're being puppeted. It's, it's sad. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's even more so because they're, they are actively committing campaign finance violations right now. They've been doing it since. Um, so if, if you raise and spend more than $1,000, you are required to register as a PAC and report uh, based on that schedule here in Vermont. They have not done that. There's there's two ways. Uh, there's two things that you basically you have to create two f- reporting forms, and they are purposefully uh, not doing the one that I just mentioned because then you have to uh, show where you're getting the money from. Mm. And so they're doing the other one so that they can technically say, well, we're 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 following this procedure when in reality they're breaking the uh, the main law, and so they're they're spending about a million dollars on uh, TV ads in, in from WCA, XWPTZ, a couple others, um, in direct violation of campaign finance laws in, in Vermont. So, so if, you, if yeah. you were to actually take the time and go back and look at the people who are supporting Prop 5 and start looking at where they are getting their money for their campaigns, mm-hmm. I mean, is a lot of that gonna be private funding? Right, and yeah, at, at the very least, there's several of the reports that I have seen that were actually correct uh, show that they're getting money from dark money super PACs, from progressive yeah. dark money super PACs, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood national organizations, which also gets money from all over the place. Um, so it's it's a, a clear indication that the money is coming from uh, far left extreme interests, mm-hmm. for sure. And And even if they get caught, and even if the extremely far left attorney general were to punish them, They'll pay like a thirty thousand dollar fine, right. and they'll be fine. So just like just like Pfizer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Just write it off. Maybe they'll even write it off as like an expense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they and they'll get it back, and they'll get you know they'll get it back, or you know they have assurance. You know they have ways to to work insurances to uh, cover that kind of thing. Right. So it it. What happens if this passes, then what would the process be to try to reverse it? So the process to reverse it would be the same um, as as putting it in place, which means it would have to start in the Senate. It would have to pass four votes um, uh, before and after an election year and then be on the ballot again. So that at the moment right now, so only three senators voted against this. Wow. So the, you you would have to you would have to change the dynamic of the legislature dramatically in order for that to happen. Interesting, and um, I think the the points that you bring up, Matthew, about the dark money, the super PACs, who's you know it's you know like who's getting funded, right? Whose campaigns are getting funded? I mean, we see the campaigns, right? Becca Ballant running for you as Congress. Um, mm-hmm. She's running and she I think she has a specific commercial that's in support of this, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, she does. Um, but there's but there's so many others. There's so many others in our state. Um, and it's really unfortunate that, um, you know, and again, the same folks who were, you know, pushing the big pharma for two and a half years. I mean, and these are industries that are incredibly, you know, that are providing so many resources to these folks. Um, and it's very scary because Vermont is such a small, it's a small state population wise. You, I always think like what's going on, but I really do think that this is where they try out, um, 
-hmm. certain legislative things to then reproduce them elsewhere. Um, yep. we're, we're unfortunately, we're just a captive audience for these types of things. If, if you get like a progressive enough place, you can pass this and you can pass that and just use this language. And how um, many of our votes, how many of yeah. the votes that go towards this are from out of state college students? Yeah. So a that's, lot. that's how, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's, how yeah. many of that, I mean, that's a huge, huge pull for Vermont for yeah. those kinds of votes, you know, out of state votes. This is, but well, I always mention this because this is the reason why Vermont has gotten pulled so extreme left is because since the 80s or something like that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew, um, they kind of like opened this door where they allowed out-of-state college students who are currently staying in Vermont for their education um, to fill out their voter registration forms because I believe our voter registration form is something to the effect of like if you have the intent um, of living here, but you don't necessarily have to really be a full-time student. And there's other states where you're, if you're an out-of-state college student, you are absolutely not allowed to vote. Right. You, know, you vote in your state of official residence unless you officially change your residence. Exactly. Um, and and Vermont is one of the places where, um, you know, you're allowed to do this. And I think it's we're the seeing effect of where you have a concentrated population of folks who a lot of them never venture out to the rest of the state to see the effect of the of the policies that they vote for of the people that they vote for you know burlington is not you know enosburg it is not you know bennington no it's really different and um I, you know we're seeing the results of it over the last like 30 40 years i think but you're you're a vermonter Matt, so you can speak better to this than I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, I, I found out recently that my family goes back to uh, before the Revolutionary War, wow. uh, which Sweet. which was something that I was I was I was pleasantly surprised by. But uh, it's um, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, and it's actually something that I haven't talked about on the campaign trail. I think we're probably a little close enough now that we it won't be an issue, so I can say this publicly. Um, but Vermont has the uh, least restrictive and most uh, insecure voting system in the entire country. Um, so it's it, so it's even worse than than we think because all of those college students that registered to vote, um, possibly even a decade ago, and are now no longer living here, ballots are being were mailed to them. Wow. Um, so a, so a handful of college students could literally sway this entire election. If, if they were aware of this, because there is no signature verification, there's no photo identification uh, as long. So if you take a ballot and um, and you know that the person isn't isn't there anymore, you could fill out the ballot, sign a random signature because there's no signature to compare to. And as long as there's no issue with the ballot when the town clerk gets it, they're going to put it in the stack. Um, and then as soon as it's also put in the stack and separated from the envelope that it came in, it is now untraceable. There's no barcode. There's no identification on the ballot that has any indication of where it came from. So it's, it is nearly impossible to, um, to do anything about it, even if they were to catch it. That's, that's how crazy it is. 
that as soon as that ballot goes into that stack of mail in, of mail in ballots, it is now totally anonymous, and there is no way to tie it back to who sent it. Wow. So it is, and the the voter roll is so um, dirty to to use that phrase, just from the standpoint of as opposed to a clean voter roll. So in other states that have mail in ballots, like for example. Um, uh, Utah is actually a Republican state that has mail-in ballots, has has uh, a vote by mail. But all of their town clerks get a notice from the post office every time there is an address change and an and obituary. So it, it as soon as there is any change in, in um, uh, of, of any kind with, with, a, with a registered voter, change of address, or a death certificate, they are they send a challenge letter there's no response. They're taken off the voter roll. Whereas here in Vermont, it could be wow. a decade, multiple election cycles before you can even challenge, hey, are you still here? And the secretary of state mailed a ballot to every registered voter in the state. 45 <laughs> days in advance. Isn't that something? And I just think of the amount of waste, the amount of money that's wasted in those mail-in ballots. Um, mm -hmm. But I never even considered the former students that used to live here right. that registered to vote here and then went and, and went on their merry way. Um, and so, you know, a, a, a lot of people come here for school, they leave. A lot of people who grow up here are leaving. And now all of these, um, you know, these mail-in ballots are mailed out. So I just, I just think of the waste, but now I, I'm, you know, wasn't even considering like the, um, the potential um, damage, so they aren't even know, polled done to the integrity of the elections. Mm -hmm. So they aren't yep. even polled if they are registered in another state. They don't even get pulled down. Nope. No, no, there's, there's no, there's, 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 there's no, there's no way no for it. There's wow. no communication with, with, with other states as well. So if, if someone's registered in another state, there's no, um, it, it all comes kind of, it actually comes back to the town clerks. That's, that's where yeah. a lot of the information comes from. And so if, if the, and, and that's why there's 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 no there's no signature verification. So there's no one there's no signatures on file to compare to. So even in California, for example, a crazy liberal state, they have two forms of signature verification. Every every ballot gets reviewed by a person and then scanned through a machine uh, based on. So they have a signature on file that they compare to. So they're actually trying to identify voter fraud actively. If this signature isn't, isn't right it gets mailed back for um, a challenge. It's interesting because it seems like with all of our, our constitutional rights, these these things are happening. Like uh, when a gun gets, gets sent to our office, say there now has to be a signature or somebody 18 with an ID. You have to show an ID for them to drop that gun off and leave it with you. Um, if, if you don't have an ID, you can't drop that gun off. And they will actually circle around until you you do have one, and uh, even if you didn't buy that gun, as long as you yeah. show an idea of where that gun went, then then you can do it. And it seems like this is happening now. <laughs> like all the all the spaces that you want it to happen, they don't happen, and the ones that they they are requiring it, like show this to get into the theater, is okay. <laughs> It just blows right. my mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm. I am hopeful that enough instances will come to light that they actually do something about it after this election. Uh, but with how monumental of a situation Prop Five is, 
I purposefully have not been talking about it at all throughout the entire election process. Because I didn't want to give a handful of college students um, an idea. Ideas, you right. You, you, they could literally just walk through the, a mail hall and any ballots still left out after right. a couple of days, Absolutely. handfuls of ballots and mail them in. And un, For all we know, that's happening. Yeah, exactly. That could so, already be happening. Yeah. Well, I want to thank the both of you for joining me. I mean, we really went down but rabbit holes, but in a good way, because I think the reality is that, you know, Prop 5, Article 22 is in it. It's, it's, a, it's opening Pandora's box because it's really vague. I implore people to take time, read it, understand. And if you're not sure, voting no does not mean that you are voting against abortion rights. Abortion is already enshrined in Vermont in the in the legislature. It is law. You can get an abortion. Prop 5, Article 22, um, voting no will not change that. Um, but it will prevent some serious overreach um, that is that is in this proposition because of how vague it is. Um, but I want to thank you, Matthew. Thank you for the, all the work that you do in general for the Libertarian Party. Um, but thank you so much for the work that you've been doing for Vermonters for Good Government. Um, it's you know really a lot of work that you've done. And Michelle, thank you for the work that you do with Vermont Stands Up um, and just being a wonderful person and being willing to come on here and talk. I know it's not an easy conversation to have, and I appreciate both of you. And thank you, um, people that watched um, and that commented, appreciate you all. And uh, just hang on a moment and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Hello and welcome everyone.